Hello and welcome back. It's season three of Into the Black Archive, uh, the Doctor Who podcast that takes you through every surviving episode of Doctor Who, which is a very pressing matter today because we're entering a series where pretty much all the episodes are dead. Um, but we have some that have survived and kicking us off through our journey is an episode called The Ark. My name's James and joining me as always is Owen Cranston. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good wherever you are, whatever you are. So as James was saying, this is the first episode which we're watching this season. It's the sixth of this season. Yeah, um, there is a considerable hole in the BBC reserves when it comes to this season and a lot of the following ones as well. Yeah, and we haven't just missed six episodes here. We've missed an ep- a story, an episode, which has got 12 episodes in and a standalone prequel. Shall we, shall we do a brief tribute to the Unseen, the Daleks master plan? No. Okay. <laughs> no, um, I'm listening through it on from the surviving audio, and it's taking a while because it's quite long. Yeah, I think for twelve parts, you because if I'm measuring that out, um, a four-parter is about ninety-five minutes. Yeah. So based on that logic, two hundred eighty-five minutes. So it's about five hours. This is. This means that we had. Roughly within a year, we had the six-part Dalek invasion of Earth, mm. the six-part for Chase, yep, and the twelve-part Dalek's master plan. So put it all together, and you've got a good you've got a good ten hours of of Dalek madness. Yeah, in twelve months. Yeah, so you can sort of see. I think Dalek mania sort of lasted the first three and then started to die down, and I think you can sort of work out why. Uh, it's the standard um, oh people like this let's make way too much of it and then people will get tired of it because we can't reach the same quality not even just the same quality even if it is the same and better quality people just get bored not only that hadn't they put the uh, the movie version of Dalek Invasion of Earth out around that time as well which was Doctor Who and the Daleks because I, I think that was like a slightly reworked version of Dalek Invasion of Earth um, so you have to add that to the saturation as well. No, I'm saying, let me just have a quick look. A film. I may be wrong about this, but I'm pretty confident that there is a film that there was around is. this time. Yeah, and it was around the same time. It was released in August, fifth August, nineteen sixty six, and this yeah. and well, and my plan was November. 1955. 1955, 65, you mean? 55, so 65. Yeah. 1965. So it's the year after, but then you also had the remake of the initial Dalek episode, just Dalek for Daleks. Yeah. So there was so much Dalek content going out, and you kind of have. It doesn't come as a surprise, really, for films didn't do too well because there was just so much being pumped out. Yeah, this is just well. This is the issue with media in general, isn't it? It's oh, people like this, so we have to make so much of it, and then there's complete oversaturation of it. And then the next thing you know, which you're nearly running a sci-fi show, which nearly got sixty years worth of history. Hmm. <laughs> how how did this happen, by the way? 
especially after season two, any any rightful commissioner would have looked at stuff like Planet of Giants and gone, sorry, why are we giving you money? Uh, Planet of Giants is just its own thing, isn't it, really? Well, we don't have to worry about the uh, the mistakes of season two. It's season three now. It's new hope. It's new optimism. Yes, because we have got the arc. It's the first and sixth story <laughs> of the season. Um, but speaking of missing episodes as well, something which, which got announced, because we have massive gaps between our recording because schedules. Yeah. So since, since we last talked... We've had announcements for new animations as well, which we're going to be covering, which is the e- Evil of the Daleks. Yeah, the Evil of yeah. the Daleks, the seven-parter from season four, which looks really good. And we've also got, am I right in saying we've got the Web of Fear coming as well, animated? Yeah, yep, so I think that's only one episode. Have, have you seen the trailer for it? I've not, I've not seen the trailer. I think I did for Evil of the Daleks, but I'm not sure I did for Web of Fear. I quickly want to get your reaction because the animation oh. is all right. Yeah, if you whip me a link across, I'm more than happy to do it now. Let's, let's do a live reaction. <clears throat> all right. I haven't done a live reaction on this podcast yet. If I can find it. It's quite convenient, isn't it, that they've, um, they've decided to bring out two season four ones literally like a month before we're due to do them. <laughs> The issue is, is pretty much bang on time. The issue which we've got with the Evil of the Daleks is that it's essentially on the day we're supposed to be, rele- be releasing the episode yes. reviewing that one. Because we had a talk about this the other day, um, yeah. about what we were going to do with it. And I think, didn't we end up coming to the conclusion that we were going to have to slightly mix up the schedule f- to fit it a week after? Yeah, we're going to end up having to do some sort of filler episode of some description. Yeah, I have a feeling it will probably be some kind of um, either recap or random William Hartnell tribute or just us going on about something ludicrous. I don't know, maybe we talk about Sarah Jane Adventures or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I found it. I'm just sending it to you on Discord. Um, we're playing it. What do you think of this animation? Uh, it's fine. Is it? It just looks it's a bit dodgy to me. It's an interesting animation style. Yeah. It feels like they've gone for something which you need a lot more budget than what they have. It looks a little bit like... Do you remember when they did that Dreamland one with, with Tennant just before he went? Oh, yeah, that Flash one. Yeah, the Flash one. Yeah, It's a bit like that. Yeah. I feel like if they did it in the style of... You, you saw the... Um, the Evil of the Dalek one. I feel like if they did it in that style, it would have looked better. Mm, no, absolutely agreed. And there's also some areas where it looks like the Doctor's neck gets suddenly really narrow. It's not, it's not like super consistent. It's. I think they've gone deliberately for an unrealistic look, which is fair enough. <laughs> We've been turned into a PlayStation 2 game, uh, says the top comment. Yeah, that's essentially what it looks like, isn't it? It does look a bit ps 3 but... Uh, all right. I mean, at the end of the day, they're restoring something from the 60s. Um, if it's restored, it's restored. Yeah. That's my approach on it. Anyway. Um, the Ark. What did you think of the it? The Ark. Um, in general, I think it's all right. Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. I think it's pretty good. I quite enjoyed it. But I think the ending I had a few issues with. Yeah, which is actually exactly what I was going to say. So... 
shall we shall we do our usual and talk about um the new characters because five five story skips in who means a lot of change um yes so we've lost vicky yeah which we mentioned um while we were doing meddler because obviously we weren't going to see her go um which is frustrating because in Medler she actually seemed like she'd finally figured out something to do now that she'd become the most senior companion, but we yeah. don't get to see really how that plays out. Um, so Vicky's been replaced, uh, which I feel like we should start off with straight out by a new companion, and this is her first full episode, Dodo. Yes. What do you think about her as a um, character? I think she was initially very annoying. <laughs> I, I I know what they've gone for, which is they've gone for like, a, oh, we're going to pull someone out who's really authentic. Yeah, it feels and like funny. Gone, gone for sort of like this really playful character. Yeah, like who, she comes out of the TARDIS initially, just going, oh, this is a this is whip stage to do, and uses me me leg or me nose instead of my that kind of authentic kind of oh yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm a working class girl kind of thing, but. Not that authentic though, because um, she is from London, so she initially used her Cockney accent. Yeah, but then the BBC told her no. You need yeah, to use because BBC uh, it's English. the BBC. We we don't do we don't do Cockneyism at the BBC. They still don't now. No, but they annoyingly on the next well, for the next companions we see, they do let him do a Cock- his Cockney accent. Mm. So who knows what happened there. <laughs> Uh, obviously, you're allowed to do it if it's tongue in cheek. You can't give it like the the respect yeah. <laughs> because the BBC didn't give anything any respect back then. Um, so yeah, Do- Dodo is new. Yeah, I f- I feel like I could warm to her. It's possible, but it depends on how she's used. Because I mean, the main role that Dodo plays in this episode is to uh, for for quite interesting and apt reasons threatens the entire story's <laughs> characters. Yeah, I I had a real pandemic-y vibe, yeah, COVID vibe to it all. But we'll get into that in a second. Uh, yeah. So out of Dodo, Stephen is still about, and this yeah. is only the second story we've seen of his, but you can tell that a lot's happened in between Meddler and now. Yeah, because so I know which, in Meddler, I was very unsure on his characterisation, but I mm. actually really liked his character here. You did? Yeah, because he seemed like his own person... He was confident, headstrong, and but also knew his limits. Yes, because I think that was what we were talking about in Meddler, where he initially was a bit too... Um, what's the right word for this? I think you said happy-go-lucky, didn't you? Yeah, something like happy-go-lucky would be right. He kind of just did things on the fly and didn't really consider them, and occasionally that would land him in hot water. Which I feel like he still does to an extent here. But it's but not it... as bad. It's done in meaningful ways. We're given reasons behind why he's doing it rather than him just doing it. Yeah, like um, Stephen's approach to doing a courtroom drama is not to do a courtroom, it's just a shout. Yeah, but to be fair, he was essentially being shouted at as well. Oh yeah, no, he was being entirely proportionate, but it just proves that courtrooms in the future um, are much more exciting than courtrooms now. So yeah, I've really liked Stephen here. I think he's better. I'm still not entirely convinced because i think steven is kind of like an ian light in a lot of ways yeah but without the same kind of maturity which is fine but i'm not sure quite whether he is a completely unique different character yet do you feel like you need to get to know more yeah i feel like i mean if we'd have seen the other five episodes 
I'm sure yeah. I'd have been at a point where I sort of knew where he was in different ways. But going off the limited sample we have, he hasn't gone a million miles forward. I still think he's pretty good, but I'm, I wouldn't take him over an Ian yet. He's yeah. definitely not transcended to become his own character. He still kind of feels like in his shadow. Yeah. Well, I hope you are happy feeling that way because he's only in one more episode. Lovely. <laughs> got to love <laughs> the this. The holy season. trilogy of Stephen Taylor. I've got to, you've got to love this era of Doctor Who, isn't it? You just can't get attached to any more No, characters. you genuinely can't. We are moving so quickly through... Companions drop like flies every week. Yeah. Uh, you know Dodo? Yeah. Uh, sh- she's only going to be with us for another episode and a half. <laughs> so... So everything is just going to get torched, um, yeah. and we're going to have almost a completely new team in two in two weeks' time. Yeah, and also you're going to have a complete new doctor soon. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, we're not a million miles away from that either. No. So, what did you think of the doctor in this episode? Um, I think William Hartnell has now reached a point where, where in his head, he knows he's been doing this for too long. <laughs> I, I think we've reached the point now where. They don't know where else to take his character. Yeah. And they're thinking about getting rid of it. Getting rid of at, him. At this point, it's very much a going through the motions. Yeah. He does all the, the catchphrases and all of the little quirks and all of the my childs and all the laughs. Hmm. <laughs> Holding my jacket. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, all those things just come out all the time. Um, you know, Hartnell... Clearly, I think at this point, either knew he was off. No. Or... He wanted to stay in it for longer, but for writers and producers wanted to get rid of him. I, honestly, I actually think that's the right call, having watched it. I, I, obviously, we haven't seen the five episodes again, and yeah. I know I'm going to keep repeating yeah. that. But by this point, you do get a sense he, of staleness. He's still good, but it's the same he, that we've had now for two series. He was also progressively behind the scenes at this point, getting harder and harder to work with, causing yeah. straight up walkouts from the crew, uh, having issues yeah. with different actors, all of that thing. Um, to the point where they did actually attempt to write him out before the 10th planet in the next episode, which is sadly missing. They, mm. they went... They very nearly wrote him out in the Celestial Toy Maker. But, but so why did they end up deciding not to kick him out in Toy Maker? Was it a I've, story issue or a logistical issue? I remember correctly, it's been a while since I checked this fact. If I remember correctly, there was some sort of writer dispute between two writers. So it got handed off to someone else who decided not to. Right. So it literally is just almost chance. Yeah, it. Yeah, because they cause it, the next one's Celestial Toy Maker. So I think what the plan was was for the Doctor to essentially be put under some sort of spell or go into some sort of box and then come out looking different, essentially, hmm. essentially being given a new body, but not a regeneration how we current how we know it today. Yeah, because presumably at this point they were obviously having to come up with a way to hmm. get the Doctor switched, which is where regeneration comes from as a concept, is literally just out of trying to switch everything up. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is interesting when you think about it like that as to how how different everything could have been just because of pure coincidences and chance. Yeah, because if, if they had done it this way with Celestial Toymaker, they wouldn't have been able to move, move on from that character. 
for the next person. Yeah, and if Trout had been done, I mean, the, the show could have been done in 68, 69. Yeah. So there you go. End of. It is amazing, because regeneration is the thing. It's the one thing I'd tell someone that makes Doctor Who entirely unique. Yeah. Is the fact that the character will always change and it's actually explained story. It's not like Bond, where Bond just shows up and he's a different man and you accept it, because Bond is more of a concept than anything else. Yeah, and it's also made to be a plot point of their personalities completely changed. So um, what we've got here, Hartnell is completely different to current the current one. Mm. Yeah, it couldn't so, yeah. be further apart. So, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, he's going through the numbers at this point, and I understand why, from a story perspective, you'd want to be changing things up. And I think that was also why, because after Ian and Barbara, it was clear at this point they were still trying to find the right chemistry of who to put in with the doctor as well yeah um from an interview which i was listening from from the guy who plays Stephen peter perv yeah um they essentially had a rule at this point which a companion could only be in the role for a year oh, so that's right. why vicky went was in and out so quickly and that's why relatively speaking steven's in and out so quickly mm. and also why it's such odd timings yeah, because they're literally just dropping out just at basically random episodes. Yeah, because Vicky um, left in, I think, for Myth Makers. So they spent the entirety of the Dalek Master Plan with no other companion other than Stephen. Mm. They had a few people who popped in and out since it's such a long episode, but they never had one permanent character. Yeah. Yeah, so, that is an, it's interesting when you think about it like that, the one-year rule. Yeah. So, the arc, it's, it's an odd story layout. What? How did you like it? In terms of just the layout in general? Yeah, just for different plot points. Essentially, okay. what it is, it's one story, but split into two halves. Yeah. Essentially, isn't it? Um, it's pretty much, pretty much what you've done is you've made a cake and you've sliced it right down the centre. Um, so the first, there's, it's a four episode story. And the first two episodes see the Doctor, Stephen and Vicky travel to essentially a floating earth which is moving across to a new planet because earth is dying um which is the plot point that is referenced in modern who in the beast below it's very yeah. similar to that um but once that part of the story it's resolved about two episodes in and then uh, the doctor and everyone is just like right well we're done here we're off again but then the the tardis just takes them there in the future and that's when the other two episodes take place which is what the chase should have been. Because those two episodes, they've got a solid ending. And that episode could have left there. Rather yeah. than just the, doc the chase and some other ones which they've done. Where they just kind of go, oh look, we're here. Oh look, we're somewhere else. Mm. Yeah, this actually used the time travel as the story structure. Yeah. Which is perfectly solid. It's a it's a great way to do it. Um there's a rule in writing which people often say, which is like structure and form are the same. Mm. Like they should both read off of each other in a way. So if you're making a something about time travel, you should naturally base your structure around time travel or whatever. Yeah. And that can apply for anything. So, so it was interesting how they used it. Do you think they used it well? Um, I think in part they did. I wouldn't say it was perfect because the issue you have was it wasn't like a small jump. It's not like you've jumped yeah. a week in the future and you're seeing the same people. The jump is 700 years. 
So all of the characters, apart from the core team, are entirely different, but they're kind of representing the same roles. Yeah. So I... all that leads to his confusion. I quite liked it. Oh, I really? thought it was done really well. And I think it shows something really unique, which they haven't done. I'm going to honestly say they probably haven't really done it in Modern Who. Because of their jump, it's actively showing the impact which the Doctor and his team have on the people which they're around. Because here they explicitly say it was the, f- the flu which Dodo brought, which weakened the humans, which then enabled the monoids to later on take over. It shows that real cause and effect, which you don't really see anywhere else. No, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it is one of the points I wanted to raise. That's one of the ways it's done really well. Because I think it's the first story where we can properly say that. Yeah, because normally that we've had they just go and then they're off again. Yeah, and they leave whatever whatever's left behind. Everyone else in the, that time just has to deal with it. Whereas, yeah, in this case, you actually see the effect. So, so shall we, before we wax lyrical just about the structure in general, shall we just go through it point by point and we explain why things work? We haven't mentioned the synopsis, I've just realised. Have we not? No. We're all right, actually. Do you want to do, do your classic synopsis speed run? Okay, so um, the Doctor and her team land in what looks like a zoo with loads of different animals all over the shot. But are they in a zoo? No, they're not. So they come across a group of humans. But are they the only humans on this ship? No, because they've got half a dozen million odd, billion odd, all shrinked up to the size of a cell. Um, the target team give the, all the humans a for cold and people start dying left right and center the humans have got a slave species much like the ood only these people rebel which we see later on um and then we solve the flu issue they go the tides they come back again 700 years in the future where for monoids the slaves have taken over can they save the humans and take them to a new land so yeah, the the synopsis. I mean, that's actually a really good one. It spells everything out. The first episode is spent kind of figuring out where we are, getting used to the politics of the world, which is what we've usually done before, mm. and then you see the effect of this cold. What I like about the first episode a lot, um, and again, this is a nerdy point, is the way that everything in that episode is really well signposted, and it mm. also signposts the other episodes in the story really well. Yes, and I also something which I really like when when the doctor first goes there, they meet people. They sort of try to work out what sort of time frame the Tardis has landed. How they actually reference other stories. They go, "All oh, the Daleks happened in this time, and Nero they, that was all in the first sector." Mm. Unlike the Moffat way of going, "Oh no, none of that happened. There's a crack in the wall." <laughs> Don't remind me about the crack in the wall. He was just like, ah, Russell wrote some great stories, but you know what? I'm going to ignore them. I'm not just going to ignore them. I'm completely going to retcon them and just pretend they don't exist. This is what annoyed me about Moffat initially. I'm going to delete the RTD universe of Who because it's not in my vision. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I I really like the core characters. They all had their own distinct personality for leader. Hmm. Um, the commander, Zentos. Yeah, all Zentos those, was great. They all really stand out in their own way, and that's really good, which we haven't had previously in season two, aside from Invasion Earth. Yeah, it was it was kind of it reminded me of Space Museum in some ways, in mm. terms of the initial setup. 
and kind of the roles people were taking in the in the society again but it's much better um there's a lot more personality of a character and you can actually really see what the motivations are because there's mm. there's the one fellow whose name completely escapes me now who is very much these people are clearly invaders um and then once they realize Centon. they're being Centos. yeah everyone's got such similar names man um and he basically puts them on trial once he realizes that they might have spread a disease yeah. around which this bit here yeah, I like really reminds me of that keys of marinus episode Oh yeah, when Ian is um when Ian's getting um trial for murder for the whole yeah. like five and six. Yeah. Which which really just reminds me of that bit there. Yeah, it's a similar thing. I, I what I what I would say about the arc is it takes a lot of elements that have been done before in other episodes and does them a little bit better. Yeah. And also it's actually as I said before, it's actually a good story. You actually want to pay attention to what is going on. Mm. So shall we get into actually the um the whole mechanics of the world because we've got the humans but we also have um another race called the monoids around yes so these creatures essentially are covered in sort of like this black scaly suit onesie kind of thing with flippers um, <laughs> with zips yeah ignore the zips with uh, <laughs> their eye where the mouth would be and they're in this first section they're essentially a slave species they've give them themselves over to the humans to act as servants. And they don't speak, so they only use sign language. Hmm. Did, what did you think of them? From the initial stage, you almost don't know why they're there, but that's fine, because obviously it becomes relevant later on. Um, yeah, they're an interesting setup. It, it kind of reminds you of a lot of the season two stories where there was like a ruling class and then a press class, and it kind of felt like they were there in the oppressed class category. Yeah. But at the same time, the context says that it was all kind of agreed and they were just there helping out and giving knowledge and things like that. It didn't... It didn't overly feel like they were actually servants. No, in an they odd were way. almost treated... You know how on Star Trek, when you've got Worf... Yeah. Who's a Klingon who just happens to be on the crew. That was kind of the vibe I was getting. Mm. Like... They're just like, they're monoids. So it, what? It felt like they were obviously a slightly lower class, but it did not feel like they were slaves at any point. Yeah, like it was clear that they were doing they were doing the hard jobs mm. as such, but they weren't completely... Like, they had a level of autonomy. Like, when they were trying to kill Stephen out of the airlock, they were like, well, the monoids were the first to die from this thing, so you can have it. You yeah. get the honour of this one. So there was obviously some degree of respect there. Yeah. at the same time so it's not quite like other episodes did you, what did you think about their their look did you <laughs> like their look that little one-eyed Chewbacca's yeah um I think it's I think it's somewhat distinctive um it's not like super memorable but this has been the tricky thing with yeah. a lot of the Doctor Who creatures so far is really apart from the Daleks there's not a lot you remember I think they did for most of what they could at the time and to be honest, when you first when they first come on screen, you do think, oh, they're a little bit creepy, don't you? Yeah, they they have this disconcerting look to them that kind of throws you off and goes, oh, why are these kind of hairy looking things mm. around? Uh, but I like how they put the eye in the actor's mouth as well. That that's a really good thing. 
yeah, creative that is way to do with when it. You, when you think of it like that, that is clever. It's really creative it way of doing it. it unique movement from the lips. And, it, and because they can control the eye from their tongue, it's a really cheap way to actually make it look real. Mm. However, someone didn't agree with us. Who didn't agree with us, Owen? Um, Peter Purves, the guy who plays Stephen. <laughs> now you've been telling me that he has uh, he has a lot of issues with uh, some of the things that happened on this show. Um, he believed, which they looked ludicrous and couldn't take them seriously as a monster. Well, I think I think it's entirely fair in the close up shots when they just sort of look like big socks. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think he's far off. I think they do look ludicrous, but I also think for the time they're definitely the most standout creatures. Yeah, and let's face it, if we if we want to talk about ludicrous, need I need I go back to the web planet? Oh god. Yeah, at least they don't look that stupid. Yeah, at least they're not like so out there you spend the episode just thinking, did I take something before watching this? <laughs> um so moving on then to the story. So st- so do they give them all for a flu which they essentially are no longer used to dealing with because they thought they had solved that problem a while ago dodo brings it along it starts especially for monoids they have a really bad effect on them they start dying getting fevers and dying but it's also having a bad effect on humans so for dodo dodo doctor and steven are all essentially sent to jail with a commander in a sick bed with the flu so steve they then have a have, as we we're saying, a courtroom drama where Stephen volunteers a tribute <laughs> to shout. Yes, I mean, quickly circling back to the whole virus thing. Yeah, because um, that is the main crux of really the first part of the story. Um, it's very obvious when we watch it, given the current climate we're watching it in, um, why it's going to be relevant. But even outside of that, it's just a clever bit of story traits. Like, of course, that would happen. Yeah. If it's been, because it's what, 10 million years, it's sort of cited as being roughly from 1966 to then. Um, Naturally, pathogens change in 10 million years. And if they've never encountered it, it's going to hit them like a truck because the body has no idea how to react. Yeah, particularly if they think it's a disease which they've previously solved and that suddenly comes back. It's the same reason why things like it, even now we still have a black death coming back. It's because yeah. it's the same sort of deal. Um, what did you think about their courtroom scenario? Was it very fair? No. <laughs> have you ever seen... Have you ever seen a more biased courtroom drama in your life? My favourite part is when Centos is essentially acting as the judge, goes, quiet, this is a fair court. Well, 10 minutes earlier, just shouting out how they're obviously guilty. I've never seen the judge do that. Yeah, it's amazing how the judge was also the um, the lawyer for, for the accusing for, team. For prosecutor. Yeah, the so, prosecutor. I completely forgot the word prosecutor there. <laughs> completely slipped my mind. But yeah, it, I love how he went, we need a fair court. F- five minutes just before shouting at them, then five minutes afterwards shouting at them again. Mm. It was perfect. I like as well how he reached a guilty verdict, which was just to go, are they guilty? And wait for his jury to shout, yeah! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of go, course well, he it's is. settled then. But just to help lift up the pressure on this scene, we've learned which a, which a guardian, what they call for humans, has died from the mm. flu. Yes. 
Which I don't really feel like added anything to the scene. No, it just kind of... It just it's just a like a stake raising technique. It's just yeah. like, ah, oh, you know, we'll kill someone else off screen to make it seem like it's gonna kill everybody kind of trick. Yeah. Which is fine. It raises the tension around a story without actually affecting it too much. Yeah. But essentially, um because Stephen is a terrible defense lawyer, he is sentenced to death. But he also uh, now yes. has the flu. So you think he's all done until the commander steps in with a bit of just classic impartial lawmaking. Yes, of don't kill them, help them, make them help you. And yeah, they... get overruled. And this is one part of this episode I don't like, when they're buzzing around trying to make this vaccine. Yeah, is which how... is episode two, really. Yeah. Is how Centos, who's against them, doesn't want them to do well, but also isn't interfering. It's literally just stood there. I feel like they mm. could have had him do something while also keeping showing him keeping an eye on them. Yeah, that maybe was a missed opportunity because I think season two, season two, episode two of this story is a little bit flat. The whole vaccine thing is actually solved really rather quickly, and they basically just go, "Oh yeah, this animal membrane, this animal membrane, whip them together, whisk and put in the oven for twenty five minutes at gas mask six, and you've got yourself a vaccine." But speaking of them getting the the vaccine stuffs. I really like their use of cutaway shots here. Mm. It's something which they haven't really used creatively yet. Yeah, there are some actually excellent uses of cutaways and miniatures in this episode that I really want to talk about briefly now that we're on the subject. Yeah. You know all the shots of the outside the spaceship with the door opening and like bodies getting ejected? Yeah. Done top notch. It's done really well. Yeah, and also the fact which they got an actual elephant in the shots to take the membranes off but also just walk up to our TARDIS crew just adds really adds to the atmosphere yes it feels like a fully fledged world and that's been a lot of the issue you have with some of the episodes and it's mainly budget but it shows that there are creative ways to do it I mean even in Web Planet you have like some of that but the arc takes it to a to a very good level yeah. I did think that the show had elevated itself a bit in the, the episodes we'd missed or in the intervening period that we've missed yeah, especially the elephant, who is called Monica, is the elephant. I'm amazed they actually got name. an elephant. I... Yeah, it's actually quite... I, I, Honestly, when they initially showed the elephant, I thought it was just some stock footage they found. Yeah, because that's what they did on Meddler, where they had like that Viking longbow. Yeah. So yeah, you wouldn't have been surprised. But they end up solving this problem, it all goes well, they get given a hero's exit and they go in for TARDIS where the monoid slowly reverses back on his cart thing and it's just, just they go, couldn't they have just cut this bit out? Ah, I think it's funny. It uh, was, I think it's a funny. monoid reversing. Why it are the funny. monoids driving these like golf cart things everywhere? I don't know. Is it I, as far as I can tell? It's I think it's just to imply that the spaceship's really big. I think it's to imply the spaceship's really big, but also it's one of the things I get the feeling they're doing it just to prove the set is massive, which they can have these things moving around. <laughs> it's because just like yeah, that is suck what, on this ITV. That is one thing which this episode does really well, which also Dalek Invasion did. It's really good at showing the size of their sets. They're really open mm. sets, particularly that main. I'm going to call it bridge area because I don't know what they call it there, but the bridge area is really large and it looks really good. Yeah, there's a sense of scale to it that adds to the episode and you add the cutaways to that 
and the good use of miniatures and it really works like it's a very well technically produced episode and um, even what we were saying with the costumes with the monoids is really yeah. clever so all these elements add together really well and then we move on to part two which is episode four and five three and, three four, and four which is where it's in my eyes at least starts to drip away a bit I think episode four is good, but then episode five is just drags on for way too long. Do you mean three again? Episode, yep. Episode three is all right. It's not as good as the previous ones. But then episode four, it just goes on. Yeah, the the, the setup into three is great. The actual getting there is great because like we were saying before, it makes uh, the characters face up to their consequences, which we haven't had before. Um, and it also completely reverses what we've known before, because now, as a direct result of what the Doctor has done, hmm. the Monoids are now the ruling class, and the humans are really the oppressed class, and properly oppressed, like... Yeah. Like 100% not, slaves. Not where they're just slightly lower class, but proper slaves. I also really like how they reveal it with a statue. Yeah, the statue reveal is fab. It's really well done. It's a really good way for them to gauge for time, which it's been 700 years. But also which for humans are no longer in control, it is for monoids. Yeah, and they are fully in control, and they rule with a hairy iron fist. And also voices. Shall we Shall we have a brief talk about the voice of the monoids? Yes, because they they actually share a very good relationship to another character. Do they? Hmm. Want to elaborate? I want to see what you want to say first about them, and then I'll elaborate. I was going to say that their voice, their voice is very Dalek-y. Yes. And they just haven't quite added the effect? Uh, cl- that is because it is Roy Skelton who does some of the voices for the Daleks. And yeah. also, uh, he does also do for Cyberman voices. Yeah, so basically Roy Skelton was the go-to guy at the time, yeah. just for any voices was needed. Yeah, because it has that sort of faint, whiny sound um, of uh, the Daleks, but it doesn't quite have the, the bassy bit or like the bass part, yeah. so it kind of feels very thin. Uh, it's almost funny in places, which kind of is to its detriment. But he, they haven't, he hasn't done the Dalek voices at this point, he does the Dalek voices later on. Oh, okay. So he hasn't start- actually done them yet. So he starts doing them for Evil of the Daleks. Right. I see. There you go. It's a good. Well, he's done. He's done a good job to sound similar to the first Dalek person, then, because that's where I've got that knowledge. I was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds a bit Dalek-y. I think that might honestly just be their processors, which they're using back then. They all sound sound the same. It, yeah, it just sort of compresses every voice into what it, they want it. But, uh, yeah, there is there is one moment I'd like to talk about specifically, and I know we're jumping into... I think we're jumping into episode four for this, but I'm yeah. going to mention it because I think it deserves a moment because it's going to be the funniest moment of this season. They arrive on the planet they've been travelling to the whole time, which is... Um, was it Refusus? I think so. Ref- Refusus, yeah. They arrive on Refusus, and... Um, the, the monoids make sort of these vague, evil statements about... ah. They'll never know what the planet looks like. And then uh, Dodo's like, what do you mean they'll never know what the planet looks like? Are you, are you up to something? And then the monoid without a shadow of irony just turns around and goes, 
No. <laughs> it is. He isn't a very good liar, is he? This is, no. That's you're you're meant to be a super evil space race. And you're just like no. Um, so how we got up to this stage? So essentially, the doc, Doctor Stephen and Dodo are captured. They're forced into the kitchens. Um, Dodo and the Doctor are taken away <laughs> to land on the planet to essentially be a scouting crew mm. with one of the higher slaves of her of them who who for some reason trusts them for some unknown reason. Yeah, he's kind of been converted. Um, and then they go off to explore to see who's who lives in this planet. And the answer to that question is very weird. Yes. Because um, they arrive and all of a sudden they're operate, they, they go into this very opulent house um, and the monoid is trying to prove a point. He's like, well, where are they? I'm going to start breaking some stuff. And so they reveal it. And then all of a sudden you hear this booming voice. And you think, oh, it must be coming from upstairs or something. It's not coming from anywhere. The refusers are non-corporeal beings. Yes. Which was a creative choice. Budget choice as well, I'm assuming. No, I don't think so. Because it meant they actually had to spend money on working out to do effects. Oh, that's true, actually. Yeah, because they had to get that um, flower pot to move. And also for seat pressing in to show which them sitting in it in mm. the ship which i thought honestly i thought those effects were actually quite good this this yeah. entire episode i'll be honest with you yeah, it's very well produced it's got good production values it's it's very weird to say that when we started off who thinking well that's got a budget of two pound seventy um it's like the tesco meal deal of television yeah whereas they've they've definitely elevated to something like a m&s dine-in for two at this point like, i don't know if it's just this episode but this season seems to have quite a bit of budget yeah, I mean, let's just hope that this is consistent with the other episodes. Um, yeah. Because if the next one's of this production value level, we're going to be really, really happy. So, yeah, that's an interesting one with how they do the refuses. Non-corporeal beings are not very often done. Uh, 2001 is where, or that universe is where they're probably most known for. Mm. So, yeah, it's interesting to see one uh, crop up in Who, although their effect on the story isn't, colossal and they kind of just act as a deus ex machina at the end to be quite honest to fix the problems yeah which i think kind of comes on to my issue of this last bit here it doesn't mm. really, there's not much to talk about really because it just seems to start and then end in a very doctor who-esque way yeah it, it kind of does the quick resolve and quite convenient one it's like oh the refusers will just help <laughs> us because why not and then they help them, and they're obviously overpowered because no one could see them. The irritating thing about that it is the quick resolve, but so stretched out. Mm. So they've essentially got an ending which takes five, five, ten minutes, but it's just a stretched out woman ending. Yeah. They spend a good minute showing because essentially the thing is, um, one has to put a bomb inside of their statue, which they're going to explode once they move down and move into this new island. Killing all the humans. Island, new planet. So they realise this, they tried to get rid of it all, but how do they? can they move this massive statue which they took 700 years moving? Well, the revolution can just lift it up and chuck it out of the uh, airlock. Yep. Done. <laughs> that really is a writer's...
to you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like I've spent the whole four episodes setting this up as impossible. But don't worry, I've just I've written myself into a corner, so I'm going to create this really easy escape. Done. That's the issue with this episode because I really like the first two, and I also liked the set third one as well. But then just the ending is just so. And I think that's what stops this episode from being a great episode. Yeah. Because it would be if it wasn't for the ending being just so kind of patchy. Yeah. And not quite on it. I think it's still a very good episode mm. and definitely worth a watch if you haven't watched it before. Um, but it doesn't quite hit that level because the ending doesn't fully satisfy you in the way that the rest of the story does. Yeah, it's... It's one of those episodes which goes into the interesting good category, but not the great category. Yeah, I mean, if you were if you were ranking this up in season two, it would definitely be top half. Yes, but also a shining turd would be in the top half. <laughs> I think I put the Romans in the top half, did I? I can't remember now. I've just edited I think I might have that episode done. and yeah. I can't remember. We, it has been a gap since we recorded. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's I think it's a very good start to season mm. three in so far as it is in the middle of season three <laughs> uh, it's a very good sixth episode start isn't it really i love a sixth episode start maybe we should start all television shows from the sixth episode oh god bbc and your habit of chucking away tapes and <laughs> trying to think of what television series would be better if we just started from the sixth episode uh, i can tell you some tv shows which would be good if you ignored the last six episodes I have a feeling you're talking about a um, a three-word show about the police and about coppers which are bent. No, that one, that's just the ending. Oh, right, that is just have the you, last one. Have you never found, which there's some episodes where you go into it and it's the first half is just excellent. You really like the character, for the main character spending time with, blah, 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 blah. But then they get way too focused on one particular point, which they then just sort of like forget about essentially the secondary character and just focus on the two main characters and it's like i really liked the, the other characters which is now just ignoring completely it's it's a tough one when you're doing a multi-strand narrative because naturally if the main characters are solving the main problem then it's going to naturally take up more screen time not even uh, but... sorry not even like a, a multi-strand story just like they forget about characters Oh it yeah, just that annoys me. as well. It just I always me. get worried about that. Like whenever I'm writing a script with multiple characters, I don't do it very often because I think it's a really tricky balancing act to do. Um, I wrote a script um, a couple of years ago which had like seven principal characters. They were basically mm. all on this uh, spaceship. Yeah. Uh, the like the briefest context possible, and the key thing was making sure to balance them all out. Yeah. I I ended up having to do a trick to do it though, which is actually a really cool trick. Yeah. Um, I had to. I had to make one of them because they end up just killing each other um, for reasons because they're That's just good. terrible at communicating. Um, but the whole twist was essentially the person who was masterminding the whole thing. Um, you don't think that it could be them because they never say a word throughout the entire script until the last five minutes, and that's really deliberate. Mm. Because you kind of just pass them over and you think, oh, they're just like, oh, wait a minute, there, there's a character there, and they've been doing this the whole time, and I made them do everything silently. So that's a fun way of like m trying to cope with so many characters fighting for screen time. Yeah. The other option is to do it like soap star. We have like an A narrative and a B narrative and a C narrative. 
Um, and you'll see that in EastEnders and, yeah. and all that kind but of thing. Moving on from James's writing tips, what did you think yes. out of this episode out of 10? I think it's really decent, uh, but that ending does bring it down. Um, I am, I'm going to give it a high 7. That's what I'm thinking as well, around the seven. Yeah, so I can't quite push it to eight because the ending just isn't very good. If if the ending episode of the same quality as even for third episode, it would easily be high eights, nines. Oh yeah, could be. We could be talking about nines if three and four was good one too. It's such a good concept. It does something new as well, which after an entire season of oh, just repress people who we need to help. I mean, quite to good be to fair, <laughs> Owen, Owen, they helped the humans overcome the monoids. Repressed people needed help today. Yes, but equally, it was interesting way than just that because we've had too yeah, many. At least it of, wasn't the same. We've had too many of just that. At least we've got some other elements being mixed in. That is true. Yeah, the Web Planet Space Museum complete double of the exact same thing. Really did yeah. tire me out. Yeah, but also. As a sad note, as we end this on as well, because I mentioned previously, which there were, yes. was was a lot of news which came up between us recording. Um, the person who played Dodo sadly died between our recording gap on the 23rd of June. Yeah, it's it's quite weird to, to kind of think about the actor having passed and us not having properly seen the companion yet. Because mm. you were saying before that we have we have contingencies for everything. I mean, we're prepared that for, you know, one day, God forbid, one of the doctors dies, um, where we'll have to have a conversation about it. But it's difficult when we're literally just about to get into the character, but we're kind of viewing them through this lens of the actor not being with us anymore. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the best thing we can do in, in, by way of tribute is to just enjoy the work she did. Yeah, and in this Not one... Not there's much of it, because we only have about two and a half episodes of it. Yeah, but this one here, at least, was very good. Yeah, this was a very decent start. Um, so, if you would like to get in contact with us, if you have watched the arc or are planning to, or just listen to us for some random reason, uh, then you can always get in touch with us. We're available on Twitter, at Black Archive Pod. You can find us there, chat to us. And if you want to email us the good old-fashioned way, that's blackarchivepod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, feel free. Uh, yeah, or, or, or just do it because you like us, yeah. or we make you. I, who knows, maybe one day we'll just be like, do it or we're going to take your family. But anyway, <laughs> enough of James threatening you. Um, farewell <laughs> and thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week for another four-part classic from series uh, three, and then we'll already be two-thirds of the way through the series. <laughs>